I'm going to ask you to turn to Judges. We're going to read from verse 11. We're only going to be able to do half the story of Jephthah, so I'm sorry about that because the two parts are pretty much connected, but there we are. So we'll do half and then half into the new year we'll be doing. So we read from Judges chapter 11. And tonight, by the way, we're going to look at, at true unity from Ephesians. So that's interesting. I find it interesting. So that's what we'll be looking at tonight in Ephesians. But anyway, from Judges chapter 11, verse 1, we read that Jephthah the, Gil- the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob where a group of adventurers gathered round him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war in Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander, so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, And the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against us that you've attacked our country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king, saying, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the desert to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next they traveled through the desert, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, Let us pass through your country to our own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his men and encamped at Jehaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his men into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Then Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, 
has driven the Amorites out before his people. What right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God Chemosh gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Are you better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years, Israel occupied Hezbon, Arver, the surrounding territories, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, but you have wronged me by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between Israel and the Ammonites. The king of, the, of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of my, the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering." Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aroha to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abba, Abel Keramim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. Again, thanks to God for his word to us. Let's just come and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you now for Jephthah and for all that he achieved in his life. We thank you for all that you did in him. And Lord, we pray now that you'll speak to us through his example and through following his example, that we too will be able to be fulfilled in, in doing your will for our lives. Be with us now and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the, the commonest problems I've found in, in church life as I've gone along is, is that of people finding problems in identifying their ministry, their sphere of service. For some people, never seem to be content in what... Is that me again? Let's see if that's better. Just rest nicely over my little tummy as I do that. Thank you. <laughs> Some people never seem to be content, I see it's bigger than you think, never seem to be content in what they're doing for the Lord. Like the woman who, who wrote to the famous evangelist of an, early, an earlier generation, Gypsy Smith, saying, Dear sir, I feel the Lord is calling me to preach the gospel. The trouble is, I have 12 children. What shall I do? Gypsy Smith replied, Dear madam, I am delighted to hear that God has called you to preach the gospel. I am even more delighted to hear that he has provided you with a congregation. <laughs> you see, there are some people who refuse to see their ministry, who refuse to be used in their ministry because they want something else, because they want what they see as something more. And of course, so often what the problem is, is that age-old problem of pride. Others, though, have a very different problem. The problem is not that they don't want to serve in the way that God wants. No, their problem is that they feel 
How can I serve? How can God possibly use me because I'm so unworthy, I'm so useless? Now, those are just two examples out of many of the commonest problems that, that to me, seem to keep people out of service. But there are all sorts of different problems, all sorts of variations on this theme. And so then, what the Lord has to do is to mold us, is to fashion and form us so that he can use us in the way that he wants. And that's what we find here, I believe, in the story of Jephthah. For although the scale is usually very different, we don't go through what Jephthah did, nor do we accomplish what he did. Yet so often, as I see it, the sequence of events that gets us into service is the same. And and that's what I want to look at together with you this morning. Beginning first with rejection. Because you see, that was the dominant experience of Jephthah's early life. The bare facts are that he was the illegitimate son of Gilead. Gilead, the grandson of the founder of the clan, Manasseh, and therefore himself, in all probability, a prominent man. And he was the product of Gilead's illicit relationship with a prostitute. And this fact, the circumstances of Jephthah's birth through no fault of his own, left Jephthah in the society of his day with no place in his father's family, at least legally speaking, and certainly with no right of inheritance to his father's property. Now, it would seem to to give his father some credit that he had at least a a degree of of paternal feelings towards this unfortunate son, and so he did. He took him into his home. However, when his other sons, when the legitimate sons born of his wife grew up, they soon drove Jephthah out from the home, uh, probably, I think, because they saw his continuing presence, maybe as an affront to their mother or as a threat to their own well-being and inheritance. They maybe feared that despite the, the legalities, that their father might try and, and leave at least something they felt that belonged to them, to this unfortunate, hated half-brother. For whatever reason, though, his brothers decide to, to make Jephthah an outcast. And unlike Abimelech, who we looked at recently, who had a very similar situation. Jephthah couldn't, as Abimelech had, he couldn't run off to his mother's family because it would seem it's not actually said, but it's inferred that the tragic circumstances of her life, the way she lived her life, that that had made her and her son persona non grata in her family. And so Jephthah then, when he was driven off, was driven off into the wilderness. Now, at this point, what I'd like to do here is just look at two parallel examples of this and then look at a key underlying principle. And the two parallel examples are, first of all, Abimelech, who we've just mentioned. Abimelech, who, like Jephthah, suffered a similar experience of rejection, but actually not so severe, and yet who, as a result of this, rebelled against God who had his 70 half-brothers murdered and eventually, who at the end of the process that he himself had set in motion, suffered himself a violent death. So that's one, Abimelech. The other parallel example is that of David. For we don't have a lot of evidence about David's early life, but the, the little that we have suggests to us that his home life too was pretty mixed up and pretty confused. 
For by the, the time he was born, his father was an old man, a man who did several families by several wives. David had brothers who had sons who were as old as him, and his sisters as well were much older. And it would, it would seem really that in his early days, that his family didn't have too much time for David. In fact, you, you read in 1 Samuel 16 that when Samuel the prophet came and told Jesse's father to call together all his sons, that initially he didn't even bother going for David. He just left him out on the hills tending the sheep. So put that together and it would seem that David had a lonely, isolated, unhappy childhood. Left out on the hills with the sheep as much just to keep him out of the way as for any other purpose. But you know, out there, David learned a great truth that later on he set out for us in Psalm 27, verse 10. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. You see, David's reaction at the human level was not to rebel against God, but rather was to turn to God, was rather to throw himself at God's feet. And the result was that he was a man mightily used by God, as much almost as any man in human history. He was Israel's greatest king. The principle that this illustrates is that God so often uses rejection. God uses the experience of rejection as a key factor in his selection process for ministry. And if you want some New Testament proof of this, well, I could give you lots of examples. But how about Paul's famous verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? I think state this principle just so very, very clearly. Starting from verse 26. He says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You see, God uses rejection. God uses rejects. Why? Well, I can think of at least two possible major reasons first of all because as we respond correctly to rejection and as we turn to the Lord so we are purged within by that action from pride we're purged from self-sufficiency self-reliance and also because as a result of this kind of response weak and broken and rejected maybe as we are yet as we then are used in powerful ways at times by the, by the Lord in service. Well, so then, the world that looks on and the world that sees us has their attention turned to God. Because, you see, they realize, too, that people such as we are could never achieve what we have on our own. It could only be our God. The problem here is that too often we don't do this. No, for instead of turning to God, instead of throwing ourselves upon God in our need, instead of asking him what he's seeking to do, what he's seeking to teach us 
through the experience of rejection and pain we're going through, instead of this, too often we concentrate, like Abimelech did, on what's happening at the simple human level. And so we rebel against God. And we allow ourselves to be held captive by all sorts of negative emotions and impulses. Things like anger and bitterness. Maybe a critical, unforgiving spirit grows within us. And the desire for revenge. The desire to get even with those that we feel have slighted us. And so you see, an experience that could be that God wants to use for blessing. An experience that we're going through that God wants to use to spiritually mature us, becomes something that's just plain ugly and destructive. Well, that was Jephthah's first step in his journey toward fruitful service, rejection. The next step was the step of preparation. We find this in the context uh, of verse 3 of chapter 11, where it says, So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed. Basically then, Jephthah, driven out by his brothers, fled to the region of Tob, which seemingly was a kind of of desolate area, lying on the borders between Israel and the hostile neighbor that they had, Ammon. Now as such, it was the kind of place where the Israelites and the Ammonites seemed to live in almost perpetual, constant conflict. And apparently here, Jephthah became leader of some kind of ragtag band of adventurers who he formed into a kind of local police force who were ready for a fee to defend the people of Israel and to attack their Ammonite enemies. And you know, it's interesting that here also there's another parallel with the life of David. For if you look at 1 Samuel 22, you find him doing almost exactly the same kind of thing when he was on the run from Saul. But in leading this band, though, David learned some very important lessons that were to be of enormous benefit to him in the future God had planned. First, he learned there the art of warfare. In the little, I'm sure at times, inconsequential skirmishes that he was involved in in the land of Tob, Jephthah learned there the important principles of warfare that later he was to put into practice when the destiny of God's people was put in his hands. Also, he must have learned the skills of leadership. I mean, we're told in verse 3 in the NIV that a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Now, in some other versions, some of the older versions, that's actually translated more along the lines that a band of worthless men gathered around him. Now, I don't think that's actually the best translation, but it does get across, doesn't it, some of the difficulties in leadership that Jephthah would have to deal with here. You see, he was dealing with men who were very individualistic, very strong-willed, some of them, because that's why they'd chosen this life, this kind of harsh, rugged life. Or he was maybe dealing with outlaws, dealing with men who'd been forced into this kind of life because they couldn't live within the rules, within the limits of normal society. And Jephthah then, he had to pull together this group 
of individualistic, strong-willed, at times unruly men, you had to pull them together and make them into a cohesive fighting force for the people of God. Now, if that isn't good preparation and training for the leadership of God's people, then I don't know what is unruly, individualistic, and strong-willed. Anyway, and finally, it would seem that Jephthah also learned to know God at this time. He learned to know him. Now, let me just say here and now, that as, a, as later events will soon prove, that there were some glaring gaps in Jephthah's knowledge and understanding of God. There definitely were. Yet for all his immaturity and all his lack of knowledge, which indeed I think he could never be blamed for because it was it his fault that he had the kind of background he had, the kind of lack of parental guidance that he had? Was it his fault that he lived at a time in history when Israel as a whole had turned away from God and his word? And despite this, Jephthah did have a very real love for him and a very real commitment to God. And that's, I think, evidenced by the fact that he uses the personal name of God more than any other person in the whole of the book of Judges. But can we doubt that the roots of this, the roots of this knowledge of the Lord lay back in his early days in Tob, where he really was forced upon the Lord. He was forced day by day living under the threat of death at every moment to rely upon God. So you see, as a result of his rejection, God was able to do in Jephthah, in the wilderness of Tob, important preparatory work that he would never have been able to do if he'd been left in the comfort of his father's home. I read um, a while ago a lovely little story of God's work of preparation in another man in a, in a more modern context. It's a story about an American who, I'm not sure if he still is, he was, a lecturer in Dallas Theological Seminary, Dr. Lewis Johnson. Anyway, Lewis Johnson, when he was a, a university student, was an ardent golfer. And he, he found, as he looked at the different options that were open, that if he wanted to play in the golf team, then the only course that was open to him that would enable him to go to golf practices was classical Greek. Now, he had no interest in Greek whatsoever, and he was not a Christian, but he loved golf, so he took Greek. He came to love Greek so much that the next year, he dropped his golf to pursue Greek. Now, having done New Testament Greek, I can't play golf, but I'd rather play golf than do that. But anyway, anyway, Dr. Johnson graduated and he went into business. Now, classical Greek wasn't a very helpful thing in, in selling insurance. He didn't have a lot of use for it. But then God, in his sovereign love, reached into his life. And this man was brought to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as he grew in this faith, he felt called to prepare himself to minister God's word. And this, in turn, led finally to a rich and God-blessed ministry of teaching Greek New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. And so you see, what years beforehand had seemed to be accidental, just a random act, was seen in the end to be part of God's eternal plan and purpose, part of his preparatory work. That's a lovely story. 
of God's preparing work. But you know, you know as I know that it isn't always as seemingly pleasant as that. That sometimes, particularly when it involves an element of rejection, well then being prepared by God for whatever work he has got for us to do, that can be very painful. As he sometimes allows us to go through the mill in order that as we respond to that rightly, as we turn to him, we may be refined and purified, matured and developed and made truly usable. It can be hard. That's the way though. It has to be for some of us. That's the way God takes us. And if in the end by this we're made usable, surely it's all worth it. Yes, if in the end, because of the time and the furnace, this produces a weapon that's usable and able for God to use in a mighty way, surely it's all worth it. Certainly I believe that's what the Apostle Paul thought. For there in Philippians, if you read the book of Philippians, looking back on his experience in life and his experience of preparation and the, the pain and the loss and rejection that he suffered that was a part of that. And Paul suffered much. This is what he said in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7, famous verses. He said, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And I'm sure that Jephthah thought something very much the same, that for him as well, the hardship of his preparation, the pain of rejection that he'd gone through, that it was all worth it. Because for him, it led to also what we're just going to finish now by looking at, the final step in the sequence to service. It led to fulfillment. It led to fulfillment. For suddenly we find that, that Jephthah, the one-time outcast from his people, that he's invited back to be their war chief, and later their leader. You see, God, the Lord God Almighty, has sovereignly arranged things so that at just the right time, just when Jephthah's gifts are matured, the people are driven by their need to turn to Jephthah, whose fame by this time had obviously spread. And it's wonderful then to see the talents and the faith developed over the years coming into their own, being fulfilled, Jephthah himself, indeed, as a man of God, finding fulfillment. For in the remaining verses that we've read this morning in chapter 11, we find here Jephthah, the leader, first of all, acting as a diplomat, trying to, to reason, trying to debate with the king of Ammon, and so avoid, avoid the need for war. I want to ask you, where do you think Jephthah learned this art? This art of diplomacy, other than his dealings as he sought to, to lead that unruly band of adventurers in the land of Tob. 
And then we find Jephthah the leader acting as, as general of the Lord's army. Because you see, when diplomacy fails to win the day, Jephthah isn't slow to pick up arms and to go to war. And of course, the victory that's won ultimately is the Lord. And Jephthah would be the very first himself to make that plain. Indeed, in his acceptance speech, uh, uh, while he was exploring maybe whether or not he should accept the offer that he'd been made to be leader, Jephthah said as much in verse 9. He said, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your leader? However, at the same time, can we doubt that the Lord used Jephthah's skills as well? He took him, used the skills that he'd learned, skills that were honed in those skirmishes around Tob. Can we doubt that, that God used these skills as his instruments to achieve that victory? But you see, all of this was only able to come about. The fulfillment of Jephthah's gifts, his fulfillment as a servant of God, this only happened because in his time of rejection, in his days of preparation, because Jephthah was willing then to turn to the Lord, to keep on trusting in his God, and to keep on doing, no matter how hard it was, the will of the Lord. And as he did this, as day by day he kept on doing this, when it was hard and painful and nothing seemed to be coming right, then eventually, at the right time, the Lord opened the right door for Jephthah. Gary Enrig in his little commentary on Judges, he says of this, he says, my responsibility, mine and yours as well, my responsibility in the Christian life is to be involved where I am, doing the will of God where he has put me. That's my responsibility. It is God's job to open doors of opportunity. An available heart will always find lots to do for the Lord. Jephthah learned that lesson. And so in God's own time, the door opened and Jephthah was elevated to the position of chief and leader in Gilead. And then in this kind of context, we also have the story of Spurgeon. Spurgeon, who writes himself and tells of a time when as a very young man, very young man, he was pondering his future. And suddenly as he was running through in his mind all the different alternatives that might be there for him in the future, he sensed in the middle of all that that God was saying to him, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Lay all that aside, basically, God was saying. And he said that at that moment, I realized that I would never go to Cambridge and that I would never amount to anything more than a small, the pastor of a small country church. He committed himself, though, in that moment to doing God's will, whatever the cost, to give up his own ambitions. You know what? He followed God. And six months later, as a young man of only 19 years old, he was preaching to two and a half thousand people every Sunday in London. Now, let me be clear, I don't want to mislead anybody. Not all of us are going to become great leaders like Jephthah or Spurgeon. In fact, in all probability, none of us here are ever going to reach anything like 
their kind of height or not. But I tell you what, I firmly believe that it is God's will to lead each of his people here into fruitful and ultimately fulfilling service. Every one of his people, God wants to do that for. Maybe not the kind of service we would want. Maybe not always the kind of profile we would like. Maybe not that big upfront ministry. But God does want and will lead his people into fruitful service. If only in the rejection maybe we suffer. In the preparation perhaps, perhaps we go through. If only we are ready. Instead of turning in on ourselves or turning on one another, maybe tearing away at each other because of hurt, pride and pain. If only we are instead of that, ready to turn to him. Ready to keep on trusting him and to keep on doing his will. You know what? God wants to use you. He wants you to be a blessing and to be blessed and fulfilled. Are you ready though? In the pain of rejection, sometimes in that hard slog of preparation, are you ready to hold on to him, to turn to him, to trust in him? My prayer is that we all are. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the example of Jephthah. And Lord, we know that in ways this is a one-off. There are things about Jephthah that will never be part of our lives, never. But Father, there are lessons to be learned. There are principles to be followed. And there is a faith example that we need to live out if we're to be fruitful servants. Lord, help each of us to see and to do whatever you're calling us to do today. And this we pray now in Jesus' name.